On this episode of How to Succeed in Evil, Lou Anders and a monster you might not be familiar with. But they were, they were not zombies. They're intelligent undead. They're almost like dragons in the sense that they live underground with all of their treasure. They're kind of too greedy to die. We talk about the Joker, world building, and I get a spelling lesson. It's D-R-A-U-G and it's owl like sauerkraut. Some men just want to watch the world burn. World burn. This is how to succeed in evil. You need people like me so you can point your fingers and say that's the bad guy. Just want to watch the world burn. An ongoing exploration of what makes bad guys good. No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. And I'm Patrick E. McLean. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world it didn't exist. So, I have to confess, I didn't really know Lou before we talked. He was recommended to me by a friend. And Lou is a badass. Well, I, I came from an editorial background. I spent uh, 15 years as an editor in the adult science fiction and fantasy field. And for the last 10 years, I was an art director as well. I, I just resigned in, in September of last year to write full time. He's a Hugo Award winner for editing and a Chesley Award winner for art direction. And has published over 500 articles on science fiction, fantasy, television, and literature. He writes the Thrones and Bones series including Nightborn, Frostborn, and the upcoming Skyborn. All right, there we go. Technology. Monobar. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and in keeping with the theme of how to succeed in evil, uh, there is a thunderstorm, I think, that is about to hammer uh, my, my little town of Charlotte. So um, we may have some melodrama just built right in. Wonderful. Well, it, it, uh, it has thunderstorm for both of my book signings. And for the second one, it actually hailed. It, <laughs> so it may be my fault. <laughs> uh, do, uh, yeah, there was that. Uh, there was that Douglas Adams book. I think it was the second, like Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, where yeah. there was a guy who was a rain god but didn't know he was a rain god, and the rain always followed him around. Gotten him. I remember that. Yeah, I, I, just, I don't know why why that's stuck in my head, but I mean, it, it, I guess because you know it's kind of England, and how do you know for sure you're a rain god? Could just be the weather. It could, well, it, it, I you know I like that series I think better than the Hitchhiker series. Oh, I, it's probably yeah. blasphemy me to say, but uh, you know they were later, so I thought they were better written. Yeah, I think I think they were better written, and and the uh, the interesting thing about uh, Hitchhikers is how many times he wrote it, like. Uh, I, when, so I've written a few books and the first one I wrote three times, like, and did it as a podcast and did it over again. And I wish someone had been able to make me listen to the advice that you should just write it and throw it away and write another one because <laughs> uh, it yeah. would, would have been less agony, man. So yeah. much less agony. Hey, can you flip um, your camera back on? Because right now the only thing moving on my screen is my own picture. Oh, there you there go. we Thanks. go. Sorry, sorry. I thought it was. That was fine. I just I'm going to be looking at myself because I, uh, it's you know, it's like it's the only thing flickering around in front of my face. Yeah, it's okay. You're a handsome devil. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, anyway, so so the whole idea with this uh, podcast is to talk to authors and creators um, about bad guys, about evil, um, because well, 
as I've discovered, nobody really talks about it. I mean, people do things like uh, this, uh, like the this sort of tongue-in-cheek, you know, super villain handbook, how to take over the world. But, but you know, they just really sort of a, a semi-critical and helpful survey of what makes good opposition in fiction. So, uh, with that as sort of a warm-up, who's your, who's your favorite villain? What's your favorite kind of villain? Well, uh, you know, it, I think that my favorite kind of villain is probably related to my favorite kind of hero, not to spin us in the wrong direction, but I love anti-heroes and reluctant heroes. And so often my favorite kind of villain is the, is the villain that is drawing the hero out into heroism. Um, the Joker is probably my all-time favorite villain. Did you, so, so which iteration of the Joker? Cause... Ah, good question. Good question, because there have been so many, and um, and it looks like I'm not going to like the new one at all. It, uh, let's get that out of the way. Oh, the Jared Leto one? Yeah, you know, it, I think that uh, the Joker for me is is a couple things, and it, it, it you know, I like, obviously, I mean, Heath Ledger's performance is fantastic, although now that we have some distance on that, I look back at that as an interesting take on the Joker, just like Jared Leto is going to have another take on the Joker, but I don't know that it is the Joker. I think the closest we've gotten to the Joker on screen is probably Mark Hamill's performance in the Batman animated series. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's got to be the best. Maybe not so much in the early days, but certainly in the TV movie and the theatrical film, the Mask of the Phantasm and the Return mm-hmm. of the Joker. Once he, you know, because they, they they wouldn't let him do anything too evil in the first couple seasons of Batman animated, but when mm-hmm. they made that movie and then when they made the theatrical movie, he was allowed to kill people and not and and once you put his performance together with a Joker who was actually evil, I feel like that was the Joker. But um, to date myself horribly, do you remember Marshall Rogers and Steve Englehart's The Laughing Fish, Detective no. Comic Number? No. Okay. No. Well, uh, I'm writing it down though. Well, it was I think it was number It's gathered in a it was the probably the first multi-part story that was ever done in Batman and Detective Comics. It came out in I think 1978. Mm-hmm. And uh it was a a five or six part run that they have since gathered together and and retro titled Strange Apparitions, but Mm-hmm. I have the original single issues from when it came out, and uh, that's the one you, you've seen. They've riffed on it in other things. That's the one where the Joker turns all the fish into having Joker faces. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen that image a lot of times. And the reason I asked about the origin story is there's a couple of different Jokers. Like the first Joker, the pre-comics code Joker, like the first appearance of the Joker, he kills like six people, like right off the bat, just poisons them, including a judge. And it's not really... It and doesn't took, get back there. They took that directly into the Dark Knight film. They yes. Were, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same thing. And that th- there was like that pure spark. And I think that um, you, know, in terms of the menagerie of villains that that Batman has, like there there's so many good villains, which I think ba- makes Batman such a great character. I find that um, I find that he's and tell me what you think of this. Like Batman's like way too powerful. He's like way over like way overwritten. He's just this. Yes, and and it you know this is I think something that probably started with the Dark Knight Returns, and and that vector has maybe sent us on too much the wrong direction. Once we once they 
decided that Batman was the character who could be prepared for anything. Uh, that's fine when Batman is, is in a world that's not laden with people who are more powerful than he is. You know, there was, there was actually a time in which uh, Denny O'Neill, the, the writer who is responsible for rescuing Batman from camp in the 70s, um, O'Neill stripped out all the supervillains, stripped out anything uh, superhuman, and actually was trying to retroactively say Batman had never been in the Justice League. DC wouldn't let him get away with that, but he was pushing to, to like take Batman out of the rest of the continuity and say, no, he's never been in the Justice League, he doesn't hang with those guys. But when you put him in a world where he's, he's supposed to outthink everybody, but you've got people like Superman the Flash in it, then he becomes stupid powerful because that's the only way to do it. And I think Batman probably works best in a world that does not have a great deal of supernatural uh, entities in it, where he's just a man outwitting other men. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, um, or, or doing things, you know, maybe in, maybe in a slightly more Rorschach kind of vein, you know. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, the, he's the really, you know, gritty noir detective. But I also think that it's... Um, it's okay to have a, 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 a ridiculously competent character as long as... It's kind of the James Bond problem, the James Bond of the books versus the James Bond of the films. Um, if, you're, if you're Roger Moore and everything is water off a duck's back and you can do everything and do anything... Your hair never gets messed up. Right. If you're Daniel Craig and you can do anything, but you see the character get the crap kicked out of him every film... You know, there's a cost for, for what he does, which is that he's a miserable person who gets beat up all the time. So then I think the audience is more forgiving of him being so super accomplished. Yeah, and, and uh, hurt emotionally and heartbroken, and he's a mess. In the books, in the Ian Fleming books, he's a mess. But he's still cool. And, but it's, but it's, it, would be, it would be no fun to beat him. Yeah. He's not a happy yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. He's not a role model in any, in any shape or form. I think someone did a study of just the things he smoked and drank in a day and figured that you would <laughs> die of cirrhosis in about a six-week period if you actually lived like Bond lived. Yeah, I mean, but that's the fantasy. Like, I yeah, want to be yeah. able to smoke and drink and beat people up and yeah. be able to run still with no lung, you know. Which, that, uh, by the way, is another great villain is Blofeld. Blofeld's got to oh, be Blofeld, Blofeld's tremendous. Um, and I don't think I was trying to remember this little note in the books that I thought was great. They made it's Casino Royale where uh, Blofeld has no earlobes. Yeah, it's a genetic condition. And yep. I don't think they did that in the movies. They did. And I thought it, it's one of those great little bits of characterization because you never forget that guy with no earlobes. That's kind of sinister, but it's kind of, you know, um, so. What do you think about? I, I would say that Goldfinger for me is kind of the prototypical scheme of you know taking over the world kind of megalomaniac. So you've got Goldfinger and Doctor No. They've got these you know sort of schemes. What's your favorite like take over the world scheme before like pre like Matt Helm uh, uh, spy who shagged me kind of stuff? Your favorite like? Ooh, well you know people forget that the, the steal a nuclear bomb and ransom it is so cliche now that you just can't do it anymore. But people forget that it had never been done before Thunderball. So I still love Thunderball for that plot. Uh, I really love, I, I know it's the unpopular one, I love Honor Majesty's Secret Service, 
where where Blofeld has taken uh, extremely suggestible women from agricultural communities all over the world, and under the guise, remember, under the guise of curing them of their allergies, he's actually going to create genetic pathogens to collapse the food supply all over the world. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the, the one where he... that's on top of the that's the snow skiing yeah. one. Yeah, that... yeah. Yeah, and that, that illustrates the problem, and it, it's kind of the problem um, that's coming up a lot in these conversations, which is if you have um, – our stock and trade gets used up, right? So it used to be you could have a villain who twists a mustache, and now it's getting harder and harder to have a villain who's really a bad guy because you can begin to see things from so many different perspectives. I, I think there's a tendency to. Re- I'm just my son and I just watched uh, Star Wars Rebels: The Siege of Lothar today, and I'm glad that it's Darth Vader being Darth Vader. James Earl Jones is voicing the cartoon, and it's it, you know because I think there's a tendency to redeem villains a little too often, or to make them sympathetic too often. I like that again. Going back, Keith Fletcher's Joker is completely redeemable, and, and there's nothing sympathetic about him. He defies attempts to explain him. You know, do you know how I got these scars? Do you know how I got these scars? He won't tell us because he doesn't want to be reduced to a child. Oh, my daddy was mean to me, so I became the Joker. He doesn't want to be reduced to a cause and effect that makes him sympathetic or understandable. I think that we're uh, we're overusing though the the trope that movie gave us of uh, the villain who surrenders to get inside headquarters. You know, they did it on on Dark Knight, then they did it on the Sherlock season finale, season two, then they did it in Skyfall, which I loved. But I think it's time to retire that trope. I think no more villains. The next, the next villain who surrenders to get inside, they should just pop him the minute he surrenders because they know that's where he wants to be. Um, uh, yeah, Loki surrendered to get inside. Yes, um, not, yeah. not that one. That's a good villain, um, though. Yeah, he's a great villain. I mean, it's the villain who, that enjoys himself and enjoys what he does so much and is fully evil but fully actualized. You know, that that's, that's really quite seductive. But the... Um, uh, yeah, and the Joker, he's he's uh, he's an artist in that movie. I mean, he's just, I mean, sort of a pure artist when he says, listen, Gotham deserves a better quality of criminal and burns everything. He's a, yeah. He doesn't want to be reduced at all. Not not only is he, is he irreducible, he doesn't want to be reduced. And, and that was going to be uh, a point that I was going to make about the Joker is that um, the origin story, um, I always kind of like the Red Hood because he's, you know, he's, it, it seems more, and it's more that Batman sort of connected to reality, right? So this is something that could happen, and this is why a guy would really go nuts and and make up his face and whatnot. But um, but the fact that uh, Heath Ledger's Joker just has an origin story designed to extract the most fear from whoever he's talking to is awesome. It's just awesome. So um, tell tell me about uh, tell me about your two books, Thrones and Bones. The well. It's a, it's a fantasy adventure series for kids 8 to 80 years old. And um, it's, the first book is set in a Norse-inspired fantasy land. And it's about a girl whose father is a frost giant and whose mother is a human. So at 12 years old, she is 7 feet tall. And that is short where she comes from. And when she is forced to flee for her life into the frozen wilderness, she meets a boy who is doing the same thing. And they encounter each other in the in the you know Scandinavian like snowbound land and have to team up to survive. 
Uh, in book two, I take them out of that environment and send them on a kind of you know, a Da Vinci Code Tomb Raider quest for a magic object into more cosmopolitan lands. So we hit a country that's kind of modeled on Switzerland and we end up in the vestiges of a Holy Roman Empire in the last days kind of land. I get a lot of fun with the with the Norse figures from the edge of the world experiencing the larger world. The shorthand is somebody said it was Percy Jackson meets Lord of the Rings, and I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> yeah, that that's a that's a great um that's a really I'm I'm thinking historically about the, what that what that setup gets you and I, I like that, especially the the coming from the fringes in yeah. because we, we think we usually think about all these cultures being uh discreet and historically, I mean everybody mixed. Well um, one of my and, pet peeves with uh with with a lot not a lot, uh, but one of my pet peeves with fantasy is when I read a book and it's like, you know, when you get the sense that there's nothing beyond the edge of the map. Here's the town, here's the spooky woods, here's the, the mountain where the dragon lives, and there's nothing to the right or left. And if we were to want, it's the yellow brick road. If we were to step off of it, we would have no, no story. And, it, you know, it's not like that. Uh, it, the real world, there's so much back and forth. I did a lot of historical research into the Vikings, and, and I confess I didn't know that much going in. And I kind of chose the corner of the world because I thought I could start small you know, you, you mentioned I spent 15 years in fantasy. All of my friends are famous fantasy writers. So I kind of didn't want to put myself up against them in terms of world building. I thought I'll start in this tiny little frozen corner of the world that's not connected with anything else. And I won't have to do the world building until I've gotten my sea legs, you know, and I, and I know what I'm doing. And, of course, doing my research, I hit the, the Viking period of, of, of Scandinavia. And I'm like, uh-oh, now I've got to figure out, you know, their equivalent of their English neighbors and their equivalent of their... Irish and Scottish neighbors, and oh, look, they went to Russia. I need to figure out what was going on with my equivalent of Russians. And, oh, God, they went to Constantinople. I've got to figure they that out. They went everywhere. Uh, with Inuits and Native Americans. And, and if you told me they went to the moon, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt it. So I ended up, well, I, I ended up writing a 6,000-year history of my people before I started writing my book that included about 23 other neighboring countries. <laughs> None of this makes the book. It's just stuff that I had to know in order to write it. Yeah, so my, my plan to pick a tiny corner of the world and stay there didn't work. Yeah, yeah and, and I mean the Vikings. like it, The Vikings and the, the, was it the, the Danes, or did they just call them the Danes? But it was this, this tax in England, which I, for evil schemes, I really like the Donskeld. Do you, yes. do you know this? Yeah, so I know. The, the, the people would row over. You know, for the benefit of the listeners, people would row over and beat the crap out of the village and take all the money. And after enough iterations of this, they just said, well, we'll just leave it on the dock. And it just became a tax, which is simultaneously evil and civilized. Which they paid for for centuries. Yeah. Uh, yeah and uh, I mean, it's better than taking a beating, I suppose. I mean, I guess it depends on how much it is. I mean, now you got a little negotiation there, um, which is also pretty evil. But um yeah. So I uh, so I I did this. I wrote this book called The Merchant Adventurer, and it's a um, it's a, it's a satire. Um, I I've working on some serious stuff now, but everything has been satire, like Pratchett and Adams and whatnot. And in uh, The Merchant Adventurer, it, it got classed in young adult on Amazon. I don't really know how on their algorithm. I think I might have clicked it and see what it would do. And it really shot up. And when I did a book bub, it was like. 
was like number two or number three in young adult for a week. And somebody gets killed. It gets their throat slit cruelly at the end of the first chapter. But it's still it still ranks in there. And I was I was a little terrified by that. What do you what do you think about, you know, because that seemed to be I mean, it was obviously the bad guy who did this, but that seemed to be a bit much villainy. You well, know, no. I mean, it because it, young adult is a step. Young adult is Hunger Games. I mean, I'm pretty sure people die in that. Yeah, lots of people die <laughs> in Hunger Games. Uh, yeah. But Harry Potter, people die. Quite a lot of people die in Harry Potter. And um, uh, I, I, I love John Flanagan's Rangers Apprentice series, and it, it, it can get pretty brutal. Uh, that's that's a middle reader series, so it's it's death is okay. It's just how you handle it and how long you dwell on it. Yeah, um, and I kill you. Th- not well. in my fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news: <laughs> We've elicited a confession from Lou. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> so what? In in terms of Viking mythology, let me just ask this question because I you've done some research. What you know, every culture kind of has something that they think is like the the Victorians were they were wigged out about sex and they were wigged out about migrants from Eastern Europe, Dracula, right? So you can put those things together. What 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 drove the Vikings a little mad? What scared them in the middle of the night? Draug. 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 You know what these are? Draug uh, are undead. Viking warriors that live in their burial mounds with all their gold. It's D R A U G, and it's owl like sauerkraut, draugr, or sometimes draugr. And they, um, yeah, they're uh, if you've played Skyrim, you've you've fought. Yes, that's what I was. Yeah, but they were they were not zombies. They're intelligent undead. They're almost like dragons in the sense that they live underground with all of their treasure. Mm -hmm. They're kind of too greedy to die. And when people come by the burial mounds, they mess with them. They're they're totally what Tolkien took for the to borrow whites in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are fabulous, and I I have a drow named Helltopper in my book, who's pivotal in book one, and uh, I I'm quite proud of him. Um, you're going to Dragon Con, right? I am absolutely. Okay, well I will uh, I am going as well, and I'll, I'll try and see you there and buy a beer or, or the Excellent. beverage of your choice. Tankard of Mead. <laughs> you can probably get Mead at Dragon Con. If you can't get, I would be shocked if you couldn't get Mead at Dragon Con. I, I'm pretty sure you could wander through a hotel lobby going, Mead? Mead? <laughs> and come up <laughs> well, with some Mead. Speaking of Dragon Con, we didn't mention dragons. Dragons have to rank up there as among the villains because they're not just monsters, they're, they're monsters that are highly intelligent and dangerous to talk to. Man, they have they have that mythic component too. Yeah. Not not only the intelligence, but it's the combination of all the animals that man could be afraid of. And uh, yeah, I'm working on a story now. Um, it, it it's my fun thing to work on when I'm not working on the thing that I'm supposed to be working on. Uh, called Beowulf and the Dragon, and it's a tale, um, basically of the. It's a telling of the last half of Beowulf. Where he's old, he comes back, the dragon comes, he has to fight the dragon. But it's told from Wiglaf's perspective 50 years later. And, you know, really, I get a lot out of going back to really the source stories of mm-hmm. something. You know, like, to understand cowboy stories, you read The Virginian by Owen Wister, and then you go, oh, oh I see why everybody freaked out about this. Um, and going back to the 
the whole, you know, the, the cause and effect of, okay, there's a dragon, the, this lives in this barrow, this very sad part about this old civilization that nobody remembers. Guy comes along, steals a cup, pisses off the dragon, dragon comes out, rampages everybody. Lifted point for point by Tolkien in The yeah. Hobbit, you know? I mean, like, just deadlifted. The biggest problem writing this stuff is 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 when you when you are doing that when you're sourcing the mythology you find out how much I was trying to find out a cool I, I was trying to come up with a cool name for a woods and I thought well the Vikings must have had a cool name for for a dark forest and I went and looked it up and of course they did and it was Merkwood. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. If you'd like to check out Lou Anders' Thrones and Bones series, you'll find links to it in the show notes, as well as some tremendous art that has been done for the franchise. For How to Succeed in Evil, I'm Patrick E. McLean. Thanks for listening.